0: Are you glad you're here? Good, I'm glad to be here too. Great to see you. Big week, right? You've been hearing about it through our services. This next weekend is Easter weekend, and we have services Saturday and Sunday. Invite somebody. Got invite cards out there to help you to do that. And we, in the meantime, will be wrapping up the series that we're in now, which is John, right? We're in John. And today we come to the arrest of Jesus And before we get there, I want to set a little context. Remember, this is the... uh, Before he was arrested, he's been in Jerusalem now for about five, six days. And remember, just five days ago, he came in on Palm Sunday, which is what we celebrate today. He entered into Jerusalem... And everybody knew he was coming, it was a lot of fanfare, they were crying out, Hosanna, which means deliver us, Hosanna, son of David, blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord, and they're shouting all this stuff, and they're throwing palm leaves down, and he's riding in humbly on the colt of a donkey, they're taking off their cloaks and throwing it in the roadway for the donkey to walk over, and he comes into the city, and then one of the first things he does is he goes up into the temple, and he cleanses a temple. That means he went into the temple complex to the court of the Gentiles and then disrupts the temple service that's happening there. He flips over the money changer's table. We talked about that, tables that are up there. He drives out the animals that they're selling up there. He sort of upsets the money machine that was the temple complex that was being run by the chief priests. Well, then after that, the religious leaders They are confronting Jesus. Who gives you the right? By what authority are you doing these things? And then there's this running debate, and Jesus is teaching openly in the temple to the people. The religious leaders are challenging him openly. They're asking him questions that will decrease his popularity or get him on the wrong side of Rome. They ask questions like, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Stuff like that. And Jesus answers those questions with brilliance. And they ask him all kinds of theological issues. What's the greatest commandment? What about the resurrection? What's going to happen in the future? Jesus answers all these things. And it's this kind of running debate that's happening. And then at some point, Thursday night, Jesus stops his public ministry and all the teaching that he's been doing And he focuses, zeroes in on his disciples in the upper room. And this is the night, the evening before uh, he's arrested in in the middle of the night. So that's kind of what's happening. He uses these last hours to reconnect with Jesus. We've been talking about reconnect with his disciples. We've been talking about that the last several weeks. And now comes his arrest. And as we get to this passage, John, the writer, and remember we're studying John, Because he was an eyewitness to all these events, and he had a ringside seat to Jesus' ministry through the whole three years. So now, John, when he is recording this history for us, he's emphasizing something more than the other gospel writers emphasize, and that is that Jesus is in control all through this stuff, even his arrest, even his crucifixion, he's in control. That's what John wants us to notice. And as we work through this, I want you to understand the answer of three of life's biggest questions. Because the answers will play out in this text. First is, what's the greatest claim? What's our biggest problem? What's the greatest mission? So what's the greatest claim? What's the greatest problem? What's the greatest mission? We're going to see how that all answered as we work through this. We're in John 18, verse one And first is, what, what's the greatest claim someone can make? I think the greatest claim someone to ma- can make is that I am God, right? Has anybody ever heard somebody say that? I mean, it happens sometimes. I mean, I've heard a couple of people say, I am God. And of course, they weren't thinking straight. They had, you know, issues. And, you know, we, everybody around them knew that they had issues. And so... It's the greatest claim somebody can make. It's, it's whether it's true or not. That's the issue, to be God. So John eight, eighteen. I'm sorry. John eighteen, verse one starts this way: When Jesus had spoken these words, and that's his teaching to the disciples, and then his prayer at the end of that in John seventeen, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. So the garden is an olive grove, an orchard, and it's a walled orchard because you hear this terminology, entered. And, uh, and that's where Gethsemane is at. And so um, the olive grove called Gethsemane, it probably had a wall around it, it's been, a ma- it's been made available to Jesus by some landowner uh, for some time where Jesus and his disciples can go there, hang out, maybe sleep there. That's kind of what's happening, camp out there. And so that's going on. Verse 2, now Judas also, who is betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Okay, so here's what we're going to see is not only they're after him because he claimed to be God, But Jesus is in control of this whole situation. Verse 6. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them. So here's this armed, organized mob, um, hundreds of people, this would have been, and a lot of soldiers, and uh, as they're betraying him, and and Jesus says this. Verse 4. So Jesus, knowing all these things were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am. I I know in our version it says, I am he, but actually he's not in the text. He answers them, I am. And Judas also, who is betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. So this I am he, that's the way the English would translate this, but in the original language it's just I am. And, and I am, of course, we've talked about this before, right? This is the personal covenant name of God. In Hebrew, it's Yahweh. That kind of gets transliterated sometimes to some English Bibles into Yehovah. Uh, it's God's personal covenant name. And and there's a backstory to where this shows up. Remember, it was Moses when he was called by God to deliver the Jewish people from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Moses is a shepherd. He doesn't really want to do it, he wants God to find somebody else, and he keeps giving God excuses. God shows up to Moses in a burning bush. Moses is kind of like, no, I don't think so. I'm not the guy. You can find somebody better. And then he, he, as he's giving these excuses, he's asking questions. Like and one of the questions he says is, well, if I were to go to Egypt and I was to present myself to the Jewish people and to Pharaoh, and they said, who sent me? Well, how am I going to answer them? I can't say, well, there was a bush on fire and the bush told me to go. That's not going to work. So what am I going to say? And then God answers Moses from the bush and says, you tell them, I am has sent you to them. And again, this is I am that I am, or I be that I be. It's hard to translate in English. It's the eternal now. This is God's personal name. So, And, and remember, Jesus has used this term before. We've talked about, like one example was back in John 8, when Jesus and the religious leaders, they're in a running, long, extended argument. They start talking about Jewish stuff, and they start talking about Abraham and who he is in relation to Abraham. And then Jesus said something like, well, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Abraham was happy when I came along. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Abraham lived 2,000 years ago. What do you mean he rejoiced to see your day? And then if you remember, Jesus said... Before Abraham was, I am. Interesting, because he didn't say, hey, before Abraham was, I was. He said, before Abraham was, I am. And when he said that, the Jewish people did not talk anymore. They all bent over, grabbed rocks to stone Jesus immediately. John chapter 8. Because they understood that when he said those words, he was claiming to be God, he was using God's personal name to refer to himself. And so in his arrest, Jesus is in control. He initiates, the mob comes, he says, who do you seek? And they answer. He says, I am, and think about it. The power of his name bowls over the crowd. All the soldiers, I mean, they're, they're ready for anything. Remember, there were thousands of people yelling Hosanna when Jesus entered Jerusalem five days earlier. So they are ready for anything. It's at night. They don't want anybody to know, but they don't know how many people are hanging out with Jesus. They leave the city. They're armed to the teeth, torches, weapons. They've got everything they need. And then Jesus just answers them, I am, and boom, they're blown backwards. Jesus is in control. John wants us to know that as he witnessed this. Even when he's arrested. And while he's being arrested, he allows it to happen, but he protects his followers. Check this out in verse 7 as we continue. Therefore he, said, he, uh, he again asks them. So he, he's at, Now they're picking themselves up, dusting themselves off, picking up their swords, you know, whatever that is. Don't know what that looks like. Therefore he again asks them, whom do you seek? He's keeping their focus on him and not his 11 disciples that are with him. Therefore, he asks them again, Whom do you seek? And, and what's really notice if you dive into the real details of John here? This time, John's writing in Greek, and he says, The first time Jesus asked that, they answered. And it's sort of like a strong, they answered, Jesus, the Nazarene. The second time, Jesus asks this. It's not they answered, it's they said. It's like a diminutive. It's like, oh, you know, and now they've just picked themselves up. Whom do you seek? The second time, and they're like, Jesus, Nazarene? You know, you can see the shift. John's pointing that out. Two different words there. Interesting. Verse eight. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, if you seek me, he's saying, let these go their way. To fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you've given me, I lost, not one. That's talking about his disciples. So Jesus puts the focus back on him. Now all this is playing out. One of the disciples has this concealed carry permit. <laughs> which I know a lot of you do too. But, and he whips out a sword. And then he is ready to do business. But you know how Peter was always a little clumsy with his words? Not such a great swordsman either, because he's trying to lop off a guy's head, but the guy ducks, and he just takes an ear off him. And that all plays out. Verse 10, Simon Peter, then having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So he's a little sloppy with the sword. Sword, by the way, Luke tells us, who's a doctor, says, oh, by the way, Jesus healed that guy when that happened. Verse 11, so Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? And here's Jesus telling Peter, hey, the cup, and and they know what this means, the cup of God's wrath, the cup of God's wrath over sin, shall I not drink this? That's what Jesus right here is saying that he accepts. It's, this cup is God's, the Father's, preordained plan to atone for sin so that anyone who trusts in Jesus can be saved from the penalty of their sin. And we all deserve that penalty. So Jesus allows himself to be arrested for claiming to be God. Verse 12, so the Roman cohort and the commander, and by the way, this word commander is a commander over a thousand Typically in peacetime, it wouldn't be a full thousand. It'd be more like 600. But we know there are hundreds of people, there are hundreds of soldiers that are there to arrest Jesus. So the Roman court and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Again, they're doing this all at night. And it's a diverse crowd. There's a lot of people, hundreds of people, a lot of different backgrounds, right? There's Jewish people in this crowd. There's slaves in this crowd. There's priests in this crowd. There's Roman soldiers in this crowd. Roman officers in this crowd. They're all there. And here's the weird thing: Jesus has been in town, preaching publicly the last five days, and everybody knows it. And so they, most of these people, have probably heard Jesus speak. Most of them know that he's done miracles. It wasn't long ago before he was in um, Bethany, which is on the far side of this little Mount of Olives, this hill, where he raised a man from the dead, Lazarus. And that swept through Jerusalem. So they all know this. They've all just been flattened by the power of Jesus' word. Malchus has had his ear healed. And they're still determined. To rest in. You ever wonder what's going on there? How, how could you see all that and still, you know, keep doing what you're doing? Well, that brings us to the next question the answer to that. And the question what's our greatest problem? It's because we have sinful hearts. That's our, our greatest problem, it's our sin. And we see that as the words flow through, as John describes the unjust trial, and he interwoves this unjust Jewish trial before he speaks to the Romans, and Peter's denial is interwoven together in the text of John, verse 12. So the Roman cohort and the commander of the offers of the Jews arrested Jesus, bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas, side note, now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. So here's, just to get the picture right, they first take Jesus, this armed, organized mob, takes Jesus first, to Annas. They call Annas the high priest because he's the former high priest. And by the way, in the Old Testament, they said, once you're a high priest, you're a high priest for life. But the Romans didn't really like that. So they just kept switching in high priests. but they're all from the same family. So they are kind of related together. That's what's going on. And the current high priest, according to the Romans, is Caiaphas, who happens to be the son-in-law of Annas. But all the Jewish people really consider Annas the high priest, even though there's been several since him, that he's the main guy and he's the patriarch of this family. So they go there. They take him to Annas, who still holds that title. And remember, Annas and Caiaphas both hate Jesus because Jesus is a threat to them and their position and the way that their entire family makes money, all that, the temple machine that cranked out profits for them with the exchange of money and then the sale of animals that really shouldn't have been happening up on the temple grounds. And Jesus has interrupted that twice, once at the beginning of his ministry, and now once just a few days ago. As a matter of fact, John tells us in John 11 that after Lazarus on the other side, in Bethany on the other side of the Mount of Olives was healed, brought back to life after being dead for days, that there were so many people who knew Lazarus and so, people, so many people that knew people that knew Lazarus that this caused a stir all over Jerusalem and it forced the chief priests and the Pharisees to have a meeting and John 11 records this meeting for us in history and they meet together and they're saying this, hey, if Jesus keeps doing stuff like this, everybody will follow him. Everybody will. And they're saying that because they know they'll be rejected. It's threatening their Their place. And they say the whole nation will go after him, and we will lose our position, and we'll lose our country too. And then in this meeting, the current high priest is there named Caiaphas, and this is also recorded to us by John in in John 11, and he says, You idiots! Can't you see this? This is not such a big problem. It's expedient that one man die for the nation. What's he saying? It's beneficial that rather than all of us and our, we lose our whole country, that one guy dies and the one guy is Jesus because we're told right then that they decide that they have to kill Jesus. All the way back in John chapter 11. And, and we see this happening, but, but here's what I want to point out. And, and this, is, this is what we don't see, I, I think, a lot. It's not that they didn't think Jesus was legitimate. They're having a meeting going, if Jesus keeps doing this, raising people from the dead, it's gonna turn our world upside down. And, And we know he's not down with what we're doing at the temple. It's not that they didn't believe Jesus. They believed he was doing miracles, but they're not called miracles. Even they called them, not miracles, they called them signs. Why are they calling them signs? Because they know these wonders that Jesus is doing is a sign testifying to exactly who he is, that he is the Messiah and he is the Son of God. But they don't care is what's going on because he's a threat to their position and their religious system, and rather than embrace him, they plan to kill him. They're the people who should have been and probably were most aware of exactly who Jesus is, and they rejected him in their sin, because their own religious system and their positions were more important to them than the Messiah. And by the way, this greatest problem, it's not just afflicted by enemies of Jesus. It's also a problem for people who follow Jesus. So here we see this unjust trial alongside Peter's failure. Verse 15. Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the slave girl who kept the door, said to Peter, you're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold and they were warming themselves. And Peter was also with them standing warming himself. And so A disciple follows Jesus. Peter's following Jesus. The mob has taken him away, and he's following at a safe distance. He's trying to figure out what's going to happen to Jesus. They take him to the palace of the high priest. And probably because these guys are all related, there's a courtyard that may serve more than one palace. Caiaphas, Annas, same courtyard, probably. But he goes into the courtyard, but there's a gatekeeper there. It's just a little slave girl, and Peter can't get in. But there's another disciple following, but he's never named. We actually don't know for sure who he is, but when he says the other disciple, because we've been studying John, we have a guess that that other disciple may be named John. Because a lot of times he, he, never, he never mentions his own name in his own book. He just keeps saying the other guy, the guy on Jesus is you know, leaning up against Jesus, this guy... He always does that. And in John 20 he says the other disciple, and we know it's John because the other guys writing the same history say by the way, that was John. Even though he won't ever tell him. You know, It's kind of that deal. We don't know. If it's John who we tend to think it is, or why wouldn't he just name him? Because he never names himself, but he names other people. The problem is, if it's John, we don't know how John has a connection with Annas. How does John able to go in, but Peter can't? But Whoever it is, and so because of that, some people think it's Nicodemus or maybe Joseph of Arimathea. But it seems to be John. But what happens is John goes in. There must be some family connection. There's some evidence of that. You know, he's son of Zebedee and kind of, you know, but we can't get into that. But anyway, he comes back and he gets Peter and gets Peter in. And so that's kind of the scene, how it plays out. But then in self-preservation, Jesus, lied, or Peter lies about knowing Jesus and denies Jesus. Just like Jesus said was going to happen a few hours ago when they were eating together. I mean, Peter had said, I'll die for you. And Jesus says, die for me before the rooster crows this morning. You'll have denied me three times. And that's a picture of our sin. Even, our, even us as followers, You know, we know Jesus is God. We know what he said is true, but we still sin. We still do wrong, and sometimes we do it intentionally. Our greatest problem is sin. And of course, that continues with the religious leaders. Next verse 19 the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. And Jesus answered him I have spoken openly to the world, I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple. Where all the Jews come together, I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who've heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. And this might be kind of a curious response to us, but it's all it ties back to the Jewish law. Jewish law says that a man cannot be incriminated based only on his own testimony. Really, Judeo-Christian law is the foundation of our Fifth Amendment. You can't convict a guy just because he says he's guilty. You need to find somebody else that can say, yeah, because a lot of people say they're guilty when they're not really guilty. So anyway, and and we see that happening in our world today too. But anyway, all this is happening, and Jesus knows, hey, this is illegal. You don't question me, and why are you asking me about my disciples? And by the way, you guys, he's, he's confronting them. You've heard, you're asking what I've said, what I've taught, you were there. It was in the temple. Two, three, four, five days ago, you've been listening. You know what's going on. Bring your witnesses. You have to have witnesses. Bring them. Verse 22, and when he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? Again, he's saying, where's the testimony? Where's, how is this a legitimate trial? And then we see Peter's second and third denials, verse 24. So Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself where we left off. And he said to him, you're not also one of his disciples, are you? They're saying that to him. He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, didn't I see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again. And immediately a rooster crowed. And it all comes crashing down on Peter. He's devastated. You see, our greatest problem doesn't just affect the enemies. Of Jesus. It also affects religious people and it also affects people who follow Jesus. The greatest problem, our sin, is the problem for all of us. And then the greatest claim, the greatest problem, that brings us to what's the greatest mission? Of course, that's the solution to the greatest problem paying for our sin or somehow making that right. And so now John, next, in this section, he introduces this historical figure named Pilate. John only calls him Pilate, but other New Testament writers give him his full name, Pontius Pilate. And he reigned at the time. And it's sort of interesting because a lot of people used to deny that Pilate existed. Even though not only does several biblical writers, historians, mention Pilate, but also secular historians like Josephus. He mentions Pilate. Philo of Alexandria, Tacticus, Eusebius. All these guys mention Pilate in history. And so even though he's mentioned by many historians, questions kept saying, yeah, we don't think he existed, and we don't think Pilate existed, so we don't think there was a crucifixion or the whole Jesus. You know, they didn't believe any of that because there was no physical archaeological evidence except for all these different writings and histories that pointed Jesus, even though those were archaeological finds, Whatever. They said that until 1961. In 1961, archaeologists uncovered what came to be known as the Pilate Stone in Caesarea on the coast of Israel. And as they dug that up, here's what they found. There's only a partial stone with a partial inscription, and it says this. It's in Latin, but in English it says, Of Tiberius, that's the Roman emperor at the time, Pontius Pilate prefect of Judea and that became the first other than archaeological finds about writings the first physical evidence but it just confirmed what the Bible knew and historians knew for centuries and finally archaeology catches up with the Bible. We know Pilate became prefect or governor of Judea in AD 26. Judea is kind of the middle section of what we see as Israel today but it included the key city of Jerusalem, and therefore it was a big deal. Pilate had a reputation of being cruel. As a matter of fact, earlier in Jesus' ministry in Luke 13, Jesus mentions Pilate just in passing as he's kind of illustrating a teaching point that he's making. He says, and remember when Pilate, uh, there were a bunch of Galileans worshiping in the temple, and Pilate slaughtered them. And so biblical and secular historians all look at Pilate who is ruthless, cruel, tyrant. But what we also know from history is that subsequent from him being installed in AD 26, remember Jesus is crucified about AD 30 through, so about 7 years before, but in the meantime, what had happened is the guy who recommended Pilate to be the prefect of Judea was close to the emperor, but the emperor found something in that this guy did wrong, and the emperor executed this guy. So the guy who recommended Pilate has been executed by the emperor, and now Pilate's not feeling so secure in his job anymore. Plus, Pilate's ruthless, and Rome they just kind of want peace so they can keep the money flowing, and so the, Rome is putting Pilate on notice: Hey, cool your jets, quit slaughtering people, and keep the money flowing. Kind of a deal. Pilate knows he's on thin ice at the time of Jesus' arrest. Verse 28, then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium. And it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled but might eat the Passover. And here you have the height of hypocrisy. The praetorium is where the Roman praetorium guard is. Probably this, then there might have been more than one location, but probably this on the northwest corner of the temple complex. But they, the people, the mob that brings Jesus to Pilate, and there's Roman guards with them, they won't step across the threshold of the praetorium because according to their tradition, that would make them unclean and they wouldn't be able to continue the celebration of the Passover. And so they stay outside and they just ask, the weird thing is, is, though, even though you could become unclean by touching a dead body and doing all these different things, it was not, in the, in the biblical law, it didn't say anything about entering into a Gentile's house unless you knew somebody was dead was, or, or something there. So according to their tradition, they don't do it, which is weird because now for the rest of this story, it's in and out, in and out. Pilate's going in and then going back out to talk to them, then in and then going back out to talk to them. But it's the height of hypocrisy because they're all worried that they're going to violate one little point of the law, which is really just tradition that's been added to the law, that they would be unclean and that would might interrupt their celebration of the Passover. In the meantime, as they're doing this, they're breaking commandments number one, commandment number three, commandment number six, commandment number nine, and commandment number ten. They're breaking half of the ten commandments by having Jesus executed. That's okay. Okay but I want to step across this line according to our tradition. I won't be able to do Passover anymore. And so it's in and out, inside, outside, because they're staying outside. Verse 29, therefore Pilate went out to meet them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, if this man were not an evildoer, we wouldn't have delivered him to you. Notice that's not an answer, right? What's the charge? He's a bad guy. Yeah, what's the charge? He's bad. Or we wouldn't be here. Right, we got it. So here's the trouble. The religious leaders are buying a little time because they know they want Jesus killed, and they know they can have him killed according to Jewish law because he says he's God. But that doesn't hold up with the Romans. The Romans really don't care if a Jewish rabbi says he's the Jewish God They believe in a bunch of gods. That's not a big deal to them. They're not going to have him killed for that. So they have to come up with some other charge that the Romans will think is worthy of capital punishment. And they do. And the charge is sedition or insurrection. They say this. This guy says he's king. Not God. King. And if he's king, that's a threat to Rome. Because Rome says there's only one king. So this guy, he's trouble. He's going to start an insurrection. He deserves to be killed. And so that's kind of how that goes. He's a threat to Rome. Verse 31. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. And the Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death to fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Therefore, Pilate entered again back into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him are you the king of the jews jesus answered very interesting jesus answered are you saying this on your own initiative or did other others tell you about me this is a legit question here's what jesus is saying are you asking me as a roman governor if i'm a king meaning i'm a political king and a threat to rome is that the question or are you asking that I'm king because other people have told you about the Jewish Messiah who is actually king of the Jews, and so you're asking that question. So Jesus is saying, what do you mean by king? Verse 35, Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? He said, I'm not talking about the Jewish stuff. Your own nation and chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? Now Jesus knows, now Jesus answers, verse 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. I mean, Jesus is trying to get Pilate to think this through. My, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, Well, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this reason, I've been born. And for this, I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of truth, hears my voice. Pilate said, what's truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. Here again, Jesus claims to be the truth. Pilate rejects that, just like our world today rejects that. The way we reject it in our culture today is like I've said before, by putting a personal pronoun before the word truth. My truth, your truth, his truth, her truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not truth. Truth is everyone's truth. Truth is the truth. Pilate knows they're trying to force him to execute Jesus. And he's trying to appease them. He doesn't want to riot on his hands. He's also trying to appease Rome. Doesn't want him to keep slaughtering people. And he knows Jesus is innocent. He'd rather he could just get rid of him or at least release him. So this is not his issue anymore. Verse 39. Pilate saying, But you have a custom that I release someone to you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again saying, No, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber, it says. Interesting, he was a robber because that word, robber, actually in the Greek includes the notions of insurrection. It's the same thing. You know, there's a lot of stuff wrapped up in there. Basically what they're doing is they're saying, we want this guy Barabbas, the insurrectionist, and we want you to kill Jesus who we're accusing of insurrection. That's kind of what's happening there. John 19 is the next verse, beginning in verse 1 now. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And we could stop right there. It's we know that Jesus was scourged, and scourging was brutal. A short whip with several ends at each end of of the end, that the tongs were tied bits of bone or metal or rock. And it was designed just to rip flesh. And so they would scourge people. It would just rip flesh off the back. Historians tell us it would rip so much flesh off their back that a lot of times you could see their internal organs from the back. One historian says occasionally a rib would go flying. He's scourged. But it's only John that lets us know that Pilate actually has him scourged and takes a break, hoping that he could be released. Scourging happened before a crucifixion, but Pilate scourges him and then brings him back instead of crucifying. And he's, he's trying, to, he's hoping that this scourging would fulfill their bloodlust for Jesus, because he actually doesn't want to kill him. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him, verse 2, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and to slap him in the face. Verse 4, Pilate came out again and said to them after this, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And then Jesus came out. This is after he scourged, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe they threw on him. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. It's the third time John recalls, records Pilate saying this. Verse 7, the Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. And if you're ever talking to somebody who denies that Jesus ever claimed to be God, just know they haven't read their Bible, it's all over the New Testament. And so for the historical record, they're saying the charge is blasphemy. That's what brought the crucifixion. So what's the greatest solution? Well, we all deserve to die because of God's wrath on our sin. But the only possible solution is that God would intervene and that he would pay our price. And that's exactly what he did. Verse 8 continues, Therefore when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Superstitious. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You'd have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason he was delivered to me. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Seems to be talking about Caiaphas, verse 12. As a result of this, Pilate made more efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes, him out, makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha, that was the day of preparation for the Passover, it was about the sixth hour, that's 6 a.m. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. For a Jewish person to say this, blasphemy. Chief priests who have been in the struggle with Rome, we have no king but Caesar. They're committing blasphemy at the very time that they're having Jesus killed for blasphemy, but Jesus didn't blaspheme. What Jesus said was true. Hide a hypocrisy. They're accusing Jesus of doing what they're doing, Same thing we see today all the time. You ever notice that in politics, different things? you got one side that are doing something wrong, but then they accuse the other side. You know, it's just back and forth. Same thing. Happens today, happened then. And Pilate's conflicted, and he he probably feels like he's caught. He's brutal. He's cruel. He just had Jesus flogged, scourged, knowing he was innocent. And then what we know is going to happen, verse 16, so then he handed him over to them to be crucified. What's the greatest claim someone can make? To be God. What's our greatest problem? We know that there's right and wrong, we have this inner sense. That's not the problem, the problem is we all know that sometimes we do wrong and it seems like wrong should be punished. It's an issue. And this is a bigger problem than we realize, and it's a problem for Jesus' enemies, and it's a problem for religious people, and it's a problem for Jesus' friends. Greatest solution? That God would intervene and take the penalty for our sin so that if we put our faith in Jesus, we can be forgiven forever. That's the gospel. That's the message. That's what Scripture's telling us. And the question is, what are we doing with that message? Probably most of us here, we believe that. We put our faith in Christ. Some here may have not, and that's the most important decision you'll ever make. But this decision, this is what we'll be talking about next week. And so we want you to invite people. That's what we've been talking about. And you know, we have invite cards that will invite people to our Saturday and Sunday services, 3 and 4.30 Saturday, our normal service times on Sunday 9 10.30. And then if you're part of our church family, we'd like you to come on Friday. Don't invite anybody Friday. But come at 7 o'clock. We'll have communion. All three campuses will be right here together. And we'll do three-fold communion together. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your goodness and the greatest sacrifice that Jesus would pay for our sin. Lord, thanks for loving us like that. Help us to be who you want us to be. Lord, we thank you that you intervened and changed our world with the death and resurrection of Christ. It's in His name we pray.